HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meet and Three is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of The Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit. And hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. One House is a recruitment firm providing a tailored talent search to hospitality operators throughout the country. Empowered Hospitality provides human resources services to the restaurants and hotel sector, empowering operators with knowledge, guidance, and time. Together, we are Recruit, Retain, Relax. And we're back. Thank you uh, for joining us. Another installment of Recruit, Retain, Relax here at Heritage Radio Network at the back of Roberta's in Bushwick. Our goal with this show is to enlighten, uncover, dissect, and explore the current staffing dilemma as it pertains to the hospitality sector, um, how it's changing, how operators can react and adapt. Uh, we'll attack this relevant topic from all angles, from recruitment, retention of talent, and the intangible quality of life. Our hope is to yield some takeaways for our listeners directly from the day-to-day operators themselves. Uh, my co-host and I take this topic seriously. We both run successful national recruiting and human resource consulting companies servicing the industry, uh, from Michelin all the way down to mom and pops, fine dining to casual. Uh, and now let's welcome our two guests for today. We have Lee Jacobs, uh, who leads the employment practice at Hell Brown & Levy, hospitality-focused law firm. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, Dina Friedel, longtime Unisquare Hospitality Group operator and ex-EVP of Superfly, who, among other things, organizes the Bonnaroo Music and Art Festival. Hey there. Nice. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for coming, guys, on this lovely hot day, finally. So let's get right into it. We're going to talk a little bit about recruitment first, and then we'll segue over to the retention bit, right? Perhaps more important. Uh, we'll start off uh, with a big topic, obviously, these days. Um, we'll start off with, uh, yeah, with Lee. Uh, tell me a little bit about your thoughts, right, on uh, de Blasio's new crusade to eradicate the tip credit. How do you envision this is going to affect business and staffing for it in the hospitality world? Um, where do you feel that there's some potential labor costs um, that, you know, that operators can actually still attain? Well, the, the first thing you have to think about with the, the tip credit is it, it affects both the operator and the employee, the, the mm -hmm. waiter or the waitress in this instance, the tipped employee. It's estimated that in New York City, done by a recent Hospitality Alliance survey, that an average tipped employee in New York City makes $25 an hour, mm. whereas minimum wage right now in New York City for a tipped um, employee is $8.65 an hour. So the, the, the theory behind the tip credit is that if someone isn't making $13 an hour, which is what minimum wage is in New York City for establishments that have more than 11, uh, 11 employees, that if they're not making $13 an hour, that they should get to 13 either by payment from the employer or from their tips. And in New York City, that's clearly working as the average and tipped employee is making $25 an hour. So right. Cuomo really is thinking outside of New York City and uh, the five boroughs, Long Island and Westchester. Sure. So we have to take a, a real statewide look when we, at, when we think about Cuomo. But as, as it affects to where employers can still make money um, and save money on their labor costs, the, the one thing that I tell every employer to do is to actually look at their schedules, look at time in, time out, and look at their paychecks. Do they match up? If they don't, you've got a problem. Are you paying too much in overtime? You're paying too much in spread of hours? It might be cheaper to hire a new employee than to continue to pay someone overtime. It's just unfortunately, we got to ask our employers, our, our owner operators, to be a little bit of a accountants and bookkeepers, get their pencils and sense. calculators out and see our, is what we plan to happen on a week-to-week -week basis actually happen on a week-to-week -week basis. That's a good point. Obviously, the management of your schedule uh, like you said, either hiring someone else or maybe creating some kind of hybrid role where you can slim down some of your labor costs is uh, imperative, obviously, as one of the big costs uh, in the restaurant. But you have to remember, though, also that um, your best employees may be your worst employees. You have that employee who comes in 15 minutes early mm -hmm. and stays 15 minutes late every time, every moment that someone is in your shop working, whether they're on the clock or off the clock, they are your liability. You have to pay them their wages and all of their insurances and benefits that may come with it. So um, what used to be in my, I come from the hospitality background. My mm. parents used to run restaurants, what used to be a mom and pop shop. We are now asking mom and pop shops to follow the same rules that, as you said in the intro, Michelin stars have to follow. Everyone has to undercome with the same laws and rules. Got it. That makes sense. Well, I was just going to add, I, I worked as a server back in the 90s, which was kind of like the Wild West the when it came yeah. to tips and uh, reporting. And, and look, I wasn't at Union Square Hospitality Group when Danny Meyer did the Hospitality Included. As a guest, I love it. Yep. I, it just gives me, so, it, 
I relax. I don't have to worry about, you know, am I over-tipping? Am I under-tipping? Did they send me something for free? And you also don't have that responsibility of feeling like you're responsible if this person makes what they were expecting to make. Um, but I know it's gotten mixed reviews. Uh, the other thing I'll say about it just from an insider point of view is that it a lot of uh, restaurants are pooled houses now. So you have someone, for example, at a 15-year-old restaurant that's been there 15 years and then someone starts on day one after training and they're both making the same amount. And I think that paying by the hour just gives you a lot more room to give people the opportunity to grow and not have as much of a ceiling. I mean, there's only so much money you can make in a restaurant. There's a limited number of seats. So I do feel like it could give some flexibility. But the actual public policy reason that Cuomo and others that are advocating to remove the tip credit is that, you know, we're good operators in a sense. People who are listening to this radio show and, you know, people in this room, we're good operators. We're not looking to actively take advantage of people. But there are people operators out there, we know them, that will literally make their employees dance for their tips or will have to put up with customers who will inappropriately touch them or grab them or say things. We've all been in that experience. Yeah. Those shenanigans are coming to an end. I mean, we've seen what's happened Ex- with the harassment. We've seen what happened with the quality of life and the new generation coming into Absol- the work field that absolutely does and, not care for that kind of And practice. this is where public advocates for eliminating the tip credit are saying that we'll, we'll stop this, that we're going to protect protect the mm-hmm. bottom feeders, the, the people who don't, um, who really need the most protection. We're not talking about the people who are working at a Michelin star restaurant that could be making hundreds, if not more dollars an hour in effective tips per night. Sure. So there's two sides to the story. And it really, um, but, but what it comes down to when I think when you ask how can an operator still save money, really do practice meet reality. Are mm-hmm. we doing what we're supposed to Trust be doing? Trust and verify, right? Exactly. Lee, in yeah. your perception, based on what's happened elsewhere in the country, is there anywhere where the argument stands that eliminating the tip credit does uh, curtail some of the harassment and other poor behaviors surrounding it, tipping? It absolutely does, but um, California recently um, moved to a $15 minimum wage and removed the tipping the tip credit in its entirety. And the what's happening is that uh, tipped employees are finding that they're getting less money at the end of every paycheck because employers are having to increase their menu items because not only are they having to pay for the minimum wage increases, but they're not having to pay for the, they're not getting the tip credits anymore. So prices are going up and customers are tipping less. And so you have now this battle of, now you have tipped the actual people we were looking to protect are saying, no, give me the tip credit back so I can wind up making more money at the end of the day. So it's it's a fraught with uncertainty. Interesting. And, and then yeah. when you get to that tipping point where the price, the menu prices are going up, like you said, there's it's one thing or another. They're either going to tip less or they're they're basically not going to go to the restaurant as much as they used to, which again is hurting the whole exactly. industry, right? Tricky, tricky. Well, uh, the next question, which is also uh, up for discussion here, is um, outside of competitive comp, right? Looking at the market and seeing what makes sense for each. Um, city and for each restaurant uh, health insurance realistic bonus program again I say realistic not that dangling carrot right at the end of the year what other tools perks or incentives would you recommend or uh, you know or currently have used in the recruitment and retention of staff right what would make sense outside of those three things 
Sh- sure. Um, and again, we're, I, I think of this in two pots of employees. You have your hourly employees and then you have your management slash supervision employees. Mm-hmm. And I think this, the first one, implies to both categories. The culture of your shop. This has to be a place where people actually want to work, go to work, feel like they have an input, they're heard, and they can affect change. So as uh, we were talking about earlier, that eventually someone's going to hit a natural high point in their salary. They're just not going to make any more. And that's understood. So how do we keep this person on? Their voice has to be heard, and they feel like that their input is actually heard, and change can be effectuated from what they want. Younger employees, millennials, whether I'm a millennial or not is up for debate, <laughs> but um, millennials feel that they want to have buy-in, some ownership. So rather than a bonus, here's a menu item. Here, you know, how can we change things in our shop to make you want to stay other than giving you a paycheck and giving you the benefits that everyone, and especially in the younger generation, expects as a reality that anywhere I go, I should get health insurance, for instance. So what's my positive added? I can design menu items. I'm just thinking something no, off the absolutely. top of my head. I think it's definitely much more of a two-way street than it used to be before as the employer just dictating, this is your if job, If someone went it. to my father and said, right. let me tell you what kind of cheeseburger we want to have for the week, he'd say, you're fired, 86. get out. Yeah, yeah, you're done. You're done. <laughs> but, you know, to the point is we do have to adapt to some degree to the workforce that is running the restaurants, right? And that's the future, they say, right? The millennials are the future. So, you know, it's a two-way street. They need to put in their effort, their, you know, their skill set, et cetera. But to some degree, if there's things that you can, you know, give them or appease them and, and make them feel like they are part of the process and upward trajectory for their career, I think that that, that is well, a smart Well, right? the thing is, is that, and I think every shop, whether you are 15 locations or a half a location, you're a, a little hole in the wall. You need to have an employee handbook. You need to have job descriptions. And with that, you'll give someone who comes in at an entry level position the knowing that I'm just not going to be a busboy. There are positions above me that I could move up over time, and that gives me more reason to want to stay and what my path to advancement would be at this shop. Um, and that comes with turning, again, what we would think and expect from a Michelin star restaurant should apply everywhere. Everyone should have Agreed. a handbook. Everyone should have employment descriptions so everyone knows what the ground rules are Absolutely. when you walk in. The level playing field, I think, is Absolutely. crucial, and more and more operators uh, with the help of you know companies like empowered hospitality are really starting to see that right it's setting them up for success right everyone's going to war together right do you have a gun do you know how to shoot the gun do you know how to load the gun everyone should have those you know that setting up for success right so they start the job already i mean i literally like as we were talking about before the show started i was late getting here i was in an uber because two two new class action lawsuits were uh, came into my firm under the Fair Labor Standards Act that someone wasn't paid appropriately. Either they weren't paid overtime, their tips were shaved, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. This is a hot button topic that people are being paid appropriately. Yeah. And these people were at one point happy employees. They wanted to show up and be at your shop and actually work there. They filled out an application. They wanted to Enthusiasm. be there. Yeah. Exactly. So what happened? What happened that turned them from whether they may have been unpaid or not, but whatever it was, they went from being a happy employee to someone being, I'm going to file Bitter. a lawsuit. Yeah. So that answers the question, how do we re- keep them? How do we retain them and how do we keep them happy? And I think 100%. a lot of that has to speak within the new world is buy-in and contribution, that they feel that there's a path forward. I'm not just a waiter. I'm not just a server. That's a good point. And yeah, just uh, final words, 
you know, a lot of people talk about finding staff is like this big dilemma. Obviously, the talent pool has shrunk a little bit. And yes, you do have to fight to, you know, to, to find the best talent for you. But more importantly is once you've attained, right, you've actually hired and brought that person in, what are you doing to keep them there? You know, what's going to keep them from, you know, calling a recruiter three months later, right? And that's, it really comes down to the person you're working for, the culture there, and that upward uh, trajectory. By the well, way, I hope I you tipped your Uber driver because you made it on time. Um, I, I five did. minutes to spare. I did. I was just going to jump in on this because Lee, you mentioned the employees who really want to grow with the company. And one thing that I, you know, experienced is you is to identify those people. But you're mm-hmm. also going to have a big part of your staff that they they know they're just there until they graduate from college, or they're just there until they have plans to move across country, and they're, you know, working all year to save up for that. And we found um, when I was working at Hill Country really identifying those employees so that you can direct your energy in the right way. Mm-hmm. So for those mm-hmm. employees that want to learn and grow with you, like develop them and invest in them and train with them and show them a career path. Whereas if you know someone's going to be with you for years, let them know it. Like, that's okay. You don't have to fake it and act like you're a lifetime employee. No one is. And what do you want to get out of this year? What do you want to learn? And in turn, that, again, talking about culture, it just makes people feel heard and valued and recognized because the rest of It's personalized saying, as opposed to just generic for everyone. I think that's, that's smart. Yeah. That is probably the best way to, for them to feel that they are being heard, right? Yeah. You're addressing their specific needs. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Also, to echo something we've talked about on every single show thus far is being very honest about what ideology you actually embody in your organization. So having the cultural buy-in is important, but if you're selling something that doesn't exist in reality, you will quickly find, and that's why I think a lot of groups do experience very high churn, especially in the first 60 to 90 days of an employee's lifespan. It's that recognition yeah. that <laughs> what what they were sold is not what's actually happening. Well, for my for my clients that um, I go through an employment compliance review check with them, and one of the things that they get is a customized handbook for their shop. And we devote the first two sections where it's the client. You, I'll, if need be, I'll clean up the English and make it sound mm. good and pretty. But I want you to write down what your mission, what your vision is, totally. so that the first thing that your employees see when you're on boarding them in this handbook is what is my shop is about? What are we here to do? And um, what are, what our expectations are? So everyone knows. Yeah, it's basically keeping it real. At one house, we call that the bait and switch, right? There's yep. just nothing worse than starting off a relationship with a big fat lie. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like you're not fooling anyone, right? It's going to take sometimes a week. It's going to take a month. They're going to turn around and say, okay, I did not interview for this position. This is absolutely not what was, you know, uh, the expectation. So do we, uh, you know, do we feel like they should stick around? Are we surprised when they're starting to look for another job? I'm not. Um, And that being said, your culture is both the negative and positive aspects. So if you're disorganized and you're crazy because you're a startup, be honest about that. And you'll find people who actually thrive in an environment like that. Totally. That makes sense. Um, Segway on to retention because we're really hitting a lot of points on retention, which is the hot topic right now. Um, And Sarah will kick it off. Yeah. So... um, Lee, you actually started touching on uh, the question of onboarding specifically sure. and what what should happen uh, in the first day to 30 days of an employee's lifespan with a company. So um, I wanted to actually take two separate spins on this. One is the legal spin, which mm-hmm. I'll address to you. And the second is for Dina, which is 
uh, cultural best practices or pitfalls when it comes to onboarding. Uh, so to start with, Lee, what do you see are some of the most common pitfalls uh, compliance-wise with how employees are onboarded um, in restaurants today? Sure. Uh, it's even one step before they even get hired. It's when the actual job notification is posted. So I have a client who is under investigation by the New York City Commission for Human Rights for having a job posting for a bus boy. And that is per se sexual discrimination because a girl cannot be a bus boy. It, it's the law. Hmm. It's the rules. It's how they're interpreted. So even from, so now the life cycle, an employee life cycle starts from the job posting and making sure we're looking for a host, not a hostess, a waiter, hmm. not a waitress, um, or a, uh, a, a service person. Um, so that's one, that's the one most people don't know about. But um, as we move to actual onboarding, um, common pitfalls, Asking someone now is illegal in New York to ask them what they made as their salary in their prior job. Asking someone what their age is. Asking someone what if their conviction or felony offender status is. Um, just asking wrong questions on an application. We're not even onboarded yet. Um, but once we get onboarded, uh, we want to make sure that we have everyone gets a handbook. We get required information, their pedigree information, name, address, telephone number, emergency contact, those types of details tax information, and most importantly, immigration information. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a hot button topic in New York, and it can change depending upon who wakes up in the morning in Washington. Um, but it's, it's an issue. It's an issue, and there are strategies in, in how employers in New York City specifically can handle with those things. All the way down to like even like changing rooms. I mean, that's going to be now something to even think about, right? Uh, Male, exactly. female. Well, it, 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 to, down to changing rooms, and there are New York. So the you know the feds set one level, and New York sets another. So you have changing rooms, and do we have cameras in the changing rooms? Do we have cameras outside the changing rooms? And what notices and what notifications? It's sure. we are asking so much of our industry that usually was run you know grown from the inside. Like I was a chef, and I want to open up my own shop. We're asking these people who had did not want to be Fortune five hundred people to now become Fortune 500 people. Most yep. of my day is now spent with working with a beverage manager or a director of operations, which has now become the de facto HR person. And they're now having to deal with all these issues. And it's... it's They've inherited a, a little bit of a, a bag of uh, goodies. And Right. And they were sold a bait and switch. I came on to be a director of opera, uh, beverage operations, and now I'm in charge Compliance. of people's I-9 forms. What? <laughs> um, so it, it, it's a perilous uh, journey, but it's one that can be traveled safely if done properly. So speaking to the wage history specifically, because that is a more recent regulation that we're learning to adapt to, Sure. what can you ask? Um, you can ask, what is your desired salary? What would you like to make here? Not and what you made previously. What would your approach be if a candidate volunteered that information? Volunteer away. But I would not have it on my application. And I would not be in a question that you would affirmatively ask. And remember, you have someone who is, so like, we'll take the um, felony or conviction status. You have someone who is a potential candidate. They've made it through the application the first round, and now they are having their background check. That's when you go and ask for their felony or conviction status, because if you're going to have a your night manager who's in charge of 
the, the cash register at the end of the night. You may want to know what their felony status is and you can have a good reason to ask for it. So now we moved from potential candidate to potential hire. And that's when we can start to ask those questions which are forbidden when we have that are asking to the general pool as a whole. And I think it's important that the, there is the legal, here's what you cannot ask, and the why behind it, because I know operators now and managers, they know the law now, and they're very rigid about, I'm not going to ask this question. What I ran into a lot was an employee volunteering, they go to church on Sunday, and all of a sudden the interviewer yep. just... They told me, they, and they don't know what to do, so kind of helping them understand the why. Like, it's okay if they tell you that, and just move on. Yep. Like, talk more about their schedule. You know, that's important, too, because I do think with such a focus on the legal requirements and things or, that have to be done. Or that people are afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing or yeah, do the wrong thing in response. And I just tell my clients and tell everyone, you are not a cop. You are not a judge. You're not a lawyer. You're not an investigator. Just be you. Do you run a good shop that promotes good values, good morals, that has a good mission, a good vision, and you'll be fine? And ask ask questions when appropriate. That's it. You know, call a lawyer, call a friend, call someone, call an call HR empower. consultant, call Empower, call my firm, call me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. shameless plug. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't call one. <laughs> um, but it's there are resources to help you. I mean, and I, I learned this as uh, when I start, first started practicing law about 10, 12 years ago, that you could, to a Department of Labor auditor or an investigator that comes knocking on your door, you could feign ignorance and say, oh, I didn't know the law, I didn't mm -hmm. know the rule, and you could literally have a manual shrink-wrapped on the shelf behind you and get away with it. 2018, no way, no how. Yeah. Ignorance is not an excuse, and you will not be able to rely on that that oh I was I was a bartender a year ago and I just opened up my first restaurant sorry um too that bad doesn't so cut it, it doesn't cut it anymore it really doesn't yeah so to flip the question on the other side I want to turn to Dina and to talk about the cultural side of onboarding um, there have been a varieties of studies on the impact of a structured onboarding process to retention but one specifically mentions that uh, of 70% of employees who depart within their first six months of employment, they mentioned a lack of structured onboarding as their primary reason for departing. Mm -hmm. So in your perception and in your experience, what are some of the best practices for onboarding from a cultural standpoint and maybe some things that uh, restaurant groups or other companies should avoid? Well, can I mention, I'll mention a specific restaurant I worked again, Hill Country Hospitality. And it's true, like employees, they need to know, they want to know information. They want structure. People talk a lot about, oh, it's corporate. And that's like a turnoff. But people want to know what the boundaries are and what their expectations are. At Hill Country, we did half of a day and going back to what you were talking about, about the culture and not just talking about it, but really backing it up, which is so important mm -hmm. and is so commonly missed in a lot of companies, not only restaurants. So we would do um, a barbecue. So we'd have our new employees. We'd throw out all the barbecue on the table. We watched this great movie um, about Texas, the history of Texas barbecue, and it was really funny. And so really giving them an insight into, like, here's 
why the founder created this restaurant because he hails from this neighborhood in, in Texas and this is what it's all about. So immediately they're connected. And then, you know, obviously go through the handbook, answer questions. I think the other thing is it's often very one-sided. People are in a hurry, especially if the ops person, mm -hmm. to your point, is conducting this. They need to get through it as quickly as possible. And really it's like, what are your questions? And really keeping an open forum for them to ask, not just on that day, but continually. Because employees are just as confused about paid family leave and paid sick leave and what they can and cannot say to a guest. And It sounds like a lot of these things are not huge cost issues, right? If anything, it's a cost. time commitment of going through it, right? Of actually sitting there with the employee going through it. But we're not talking about a huge cost associated with keeping it real, right? And, and uh, well, showing up, showing your true colors, right? When it comes to onboarding. So it's surprising that, um, you know, that it is so uh, complex, you know, for all these companies to do it and to set their employees up for success. You know, well, I understand it having worked in operations and operations as I'm sure you have, like, I think a lot of the focus from founders is what is guest facing food, service, keeping the lights on, and a lot of resources and time is put towards that. It's very important. And so I understand operators, to your point, I don't know how to fill out an I-9, and should they know? No, they need to be running the restaurant mm -hmm. the best way. At the same time, I would argue that HR and people practice is 100% guest-facing. And so investing in that cultural piece of doing what we say we're going to do, even when it comes to like values, like you talked about, yeah, there are companies where you say, okay, here's what's important to us, do this. But not only getting buy-in, but if there's a way you can, like at Superfly, we took seven months. And again, it's very different outside of hospitality where you have the ability to have everyone in the same room every day and all together. But we took seven months and created our core values together as a company. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of companies have done that. And it was extremely successful. And Sounds it was millennial based, friendly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone had, they, they created it. <laughs> and it was based in reality, too. It was based in, like, what do we do? And I think that restaurant, I'll wrap this up, but I do think that restaurateurs can do that in a way in terms of, like, rewards and recognition. And, um, uh, let us entertain you, and his name is escaping me now. Uh, I heard this famous story about him, uh, the founder, uh, Rich Melman, Mel Melman. Rich Melman, um, that he would, uh, maybe this is an urban myth, but uh, he'd put $100 in a napkin and, you know, have the napkin on the floor and just watch employees walk by it. And then someone would walk by and pick it up, and they'd have $100. So what he's saying to them mm -hmm. is, this is really important. You got a reward because you did something. They didn't add it to the tip pool? Because I don't know. I, I don't know. I think they have to go to the tip pool. My heart skipped a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just, you know, creating rewards, recognition, even things that don't cost money, like verbal recognition. A lot of places have employee of the month. Well, why? Why are they employee of the month? Like, name it something related to your values. Tell the story, you know, uh, there's so many things you can do that aren't cost related, but that tie your values to your behaviors. And the next boiling point, over, boiling over point that I see for our industry is going to come sometime March of 2019, uh, next the wage, year. The wage? Oh. No, it's um, <laughs> the city council has enacted that in-person live sexual harassment training needs to happen for, haven't, the specifics haven't come out yet, but 
was supposedly it's March 1st, 2019, but in-person live sexual harassment training. So if you have a company where you're going to be up there, okay, guys, here's some slideshows, some slides, done, done, done. You're going to have a problem and you're not going to have buy-in. And those are the employees that when now that I know that, hey, I can cause a problem is going to be a lawsuit down the road. Whereas if you have real, interactive, open, honest training that matches with your vision and your values of your business, you're not going to have problems because the employees are one going to know what creates a hostile environment and know that management's going to be receptive and want to fix the problems before they actually happen. So prediction, March, April 2019. You heard it here first. Another wave (laughs) of lawsuits is going to happen. There's going to be another Me Too movement or... Us to movement, something along those lines. To your point, I mean, part of the issue, right, has been the fear of reporting something, the fear of going to your supervisor and feeling there's going to be some kind of backlash to that. So anything that creates a more open environment or forum to, uh, you know, to review that, I think that that's healthy for the whole industry, right? One of the things that we talk about in our, uh, our harassment prevention trainings is the top reasons that people don't report and the top Uh, based on a study that we share with everyone is fear of not being believed and what is scary uh, or that operators should be aware of coming up on this new requirement is that if that fear exists that is the employee who seeks out another party a third party an attorney who can represent them and make their voice be heard and respected that's why i advise all my clients to do exit interviews even with your hourly person that's been there for three days because maybe you'll find out something to improve your shop or the person will get off of their chest that problem that they would have called their cousin who has a friend who's a lawyer. Exactly. Yeah, and, or turns stay into a interviews. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, you know, every six months or three months, check in. and. I recommend doing yeah. yearly, at, at minimum, yearly evaluations with your all your employees, regardless of their stage. Yearly. Yearly. Dina, I love this idea of the stay interview. Can yeah, you talk like a little that. bit about yeah. how that works? I can't claim credit. It is not an original <laughs> Dina idea. Well, it's just that idea that the exit interview, what does that do? Like, it's great information mm-hmm. for the employer on what to change. For Reactive, not proactive. Other employees, yeah. exactly. But, like, that employee who left is still leaving. So it can be helpful, and I'm sure it is, but... Um, to check in with employees more, you know, frequently and not just in a review, like let's review your performance, but just to t- chat. Like to your point, it's like people, young people especially, they want to be heard, they want to be recognized. And I don't blame operators, but un- it's kind of a catch-22. When your employee turnover is 110%, yep. you're not as incentivized mm-hmm. to really invest in someone. And that goes back to having the conversation when you're recruiting people. What are your goals? You want, you know, is your goal to grow in our company or is your goal to, you know, finish up a year here before you move on? All of that is information for you to really interact with your employees in a way that's personal. And so a stay interview could be, I don't, I don't even know if there is a formal way to do it, but just to have that conversation about, hey, what's keeping you here? Or, hey, you just referred someone. That's awesome. Like, tell me why you did that. Like, what did you say about us? You know, or in the opposite way, if you see someone who's been sort of bummed out, you don't have to get too personal, but say, hey, you know, I noticed you've been bummed out. Is there anything here that we could do? Is there anything in the work environment that we can change? What better way to show that you care, right, than to actually committing 
the time <laughs> to sit down and just for it, it doesn't have to be half an hour. It could be ten minutes right before pre-shift, and you look at your schedule and you roll everybody in. So and within two weeks, you've hit everybody. Um, and I'm sure there are people simple. listening saying, "Okay, yeah, great. That's aspiration. I have zero time for that." But again, it's that catch twenty two. Like, if operators, if we can start doing yeah. that, then that turnover rate may go down. Ten or minutes you'll to save someone time. versus yeah. two weeks recruiting someone else because the other one left. And yeah. cha- change is hard. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. you may be, you may not. In your mind, you think you don't have time for it, but if you start scheduling it and you start believing that you do, you will. I mean, one of the things that I am advocating for and um, is like, for instance, the shift drink, the post-shift drink should end. It should be over, are done with. Are people still doing that? People are still doing <laughs> the it. The 90s. I just, uh, yeah, I published an article about that uh, just wow. recently. It's still doing it. And they're like, no, it's part of the culture. You don't understand. I'm going to lose people. Okay. Lose them then. Lose it's, those people. Yeah. Lose them. It's move on. It's... You, you want to protect your business that you spent so much hard time and money, blood, sweat, and tears building. Protect it. Take five minutes out of the time. Talk to your employees. Just do it. And frankly, when we talk about weaving the culture and the values through all of the interactions and the all phases of the employee life cycle, where does drinking fall under those core values? Nowhere. <laughs> right. And what happens when people drink most definitely does not fall under those core values. So I think it's a question of, you know, maybe it, it's a reward or it's perceived as a reward, but it's not tied back to the overall uh, guiding vision of the company that makes people want to be there. There's and other ways that you can bond and create camaraderie without having to have a beer. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the other and I in my time in working in the, yeah, as an attorney in the hospitality industry, I have yet to come across a operator that has said, I started my, posi- my job to make money. I did this only to make money. No, it's because they actually believed in something, actually had a legit mission or a vision that they wanted to create something and bring it to their community. Protect it. This isn't just some like business investment where you opened up like a mailboxes, et cetera. You're one in a million down the road. No, this is you. You're cre- you created something. Take these extra steps to protect it. It's, it's you out there to the world. Protect it. Do it. It's... It seems like common sense, but no please listen. Do it. <laughs> Protect yourself. And just a quick aside, I was at Union Square Cafe as a manager when we did get rid of shift drinks, and everybody did was up in arms, and then it blew over. And actually what they found out was, oh, I'm getting out earlier and yep. can just go to the bar with my friends and hang out uh, because they were f- not hanging around the restaurant. So it took some time and like you said like change is really difficult but if everyone understands the why and the management is like standing behind it and if you find those employees who are behind it and have them help advocate exactly. for you it, it will pass finding a couple ambassadors yeah right, exactly. in your staff I think is, is a key as well so to turn to our last question and I want to keep this rather brief but um, it's interesting because we went on a bit of a tangent but it really expresses I think the um, sentiment in the industry as a whole, which is legal compliance is it rules our lives. We spend a lot more time thinking about how to avoid a lawsuit than we do about, frankly, almost anything else. So the question is, amidst all of this uh, legal drama, amidst these class action lawsuits that are landing on your desk every day, Lee, how can employers still avoid focusing on the lowest common denominator, which is the bad employee or the litigious employee or the disgruntled employee, 
and focus instead on a positive approach, building a culture people want to be part of, um, and inherently in that, avoiding some of these lawsuits. Sure. The first, the first thing is you have to educate yourself. As, as an owner-operator, um, you have to know the law. You have to know the rules. You have to make sure you're playing by the rules. That's step one. If you're not pe- playing by the rules, then you are going to find yourself in trouble, whether it be with the state or through a private lawsuit. So then how do we focus on the good employees and the bad employees? First thing is we have the same rules and structures that apply to everyone. If I'm writing up my bad employees for poor performance, I am writing up my good employees for good performance so that they know that I'm getting something in my file that when it comes time for reviews and promotions, whatever it may be, that I can get a raise and I have something to back it up for me. So I'm applying the same rules to everyone, no matter who or what they do in my shop, for good reasons and bad reasons. Um, and the the legal compliance, the other part too, is, is that there's insurance, there's employment practices, liability insurance that you can, pl- you can pay for. It's quite expensive. There are attorneys. We can help you. We can help you figure out how to navigate the minefield. There are HR companies that can help you figure out the minefield. But the answers are out there. You don't have to feel alone. Just pick up the phone and call someone. Go on the internet, find a law firm, find my firm, find your firm. We're there to help you. It, it should not be felt at all that you're left dangling in the wind in this complexity. It, it's You're not the first wheel. Um, you know, Let's not reinvent you. We can help yeah. you. Dina, how about from your perspective? How do, we, how do we cater to the good employees and focus less time on who's doing what wrong? My first thought is we shouldn't have bad employees, although that happens, but that whole idea of like hire slowly and fire quickly kind of thing, like make sure you're, when you identify someone who's quote unquote like bad or just not following whatever rules are in place to address that immediately. But what comes to mind is this idea of expectation versus agreement. And, um, I talk about that a lot because it was a really good tool for me. So all of these legal uh, requirements are expected. But as employers, we are expected to follow them and employees are expected to follow them. But that's also, like as Danny would say, more of a monologue and not a dialogue. Mm -hmm. So having an agreement, so when you have an employee who's doing something wrong or who has violated, you know, a rule that's in place to sit down with them and find out about it and then say, like, can we agree that, okay, so in the future, like, we, you know, we understand that this, A, behavior is not acceptable. Can we agree that this won't happen again? I probably have a better example, but you get the idea, right? So just having them engaged, and when someone makes an agreement with you, it's personal. So it's less about they expect me to do this and more about, okay, I I said I would do this. Not 100% of the time, but again, it goes back to people feeling heard. So I just feel like that's an overarching umbrella of culture, and there's a lot of pieces to that. And again, learning and development and rewards and recognition and ways that you can encourage a positive culture and one that's aligned to your company's values. But the overall is just recognize people Like, you know, again, it's hard when they're maybe turning over a lot, but each one of them is there for a reason. And to really, you know, have that eye contact and that time with them and make agreements and really engage with them. 
Yeah, that's great. And, um, you know, I think positive engagement, like both of you mentioned, is really critical. So one question that I've asked in the past when I see that there's a cultural rift between management and the employees that they work with is what was the last piece of feedback you gave that person? And Mm -hmm. typically where it's not working, they can't even remember. So I guess I would ask that of everyone who's listening to this show as one action item you can take with you. What was the last piece of feedback you gave every person on your team? And if you can't remember, make a point to have that conversation with them today or tomorrow or the next day. So we are going to take a brief break. When we come back, we have a little surprise. So get ready. Setting the table begins long before the glassware is polished, before the china is set, spotless, on the table. Setting the table begins with selecting the right people for your team. Everything flows from the expertise, innate hospitality, and critical thinking of the people who act as ambassadors to your guests every day. With One House, a recruitment firm providing a tailored talent search to hospitality operators, finding the right people is a simple recipe. One House identifies, contacts, and interviews prospective talent and conducts pre-hire reference checks. One House also assists in curating chef-tasting menus and liaises between candidate and operator throughout the interview process. Empowered Hospitality delivers human resources solutions to growing hospitality companies, presenting solutions that empower owners and operators with the knowledge, guidance, and time to better grow their businesses. Empowered Hospitality solutions include a fully outsourced HR department, a la carte recruitment, compliance, and HR hotline services, training and education, and strategic advisement. All right. Welcome back. So we're excited because, as our show is called Recruit, Retain, Relax, we are now on to the relaxation portion of our show. (laughs) Thank you to the sound effect. (laughs) So we are going to actually ask you uh, some questions. It's a bit of a quick fire challenge. Um, I will preface that Lee and Dina have not been prepared on these particular questions. So um, we're ready for a surprise. So I'm going to jump in and um, answer the question based on your initial gut reaction. We want to learn a little bit about how you relax in your time off. So I will start with Lee. Uh, favorite cookbook or culinary icon? <laughs> right now, it's Lydia Bastianich. Um, right now, because her show is on on Channel Twenty One at three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep. So there you go. Nice, very nice. Those wage and hour lawsuits keeping you up. Absolutely. <laughs> Dina, how about you? Um, well, of course, the Union Square Cafe, the first handbook has a uh, cookbook. Handbooks on the mind. Mine is in HR. Always. <laughs> the first cookbook has a very special place in my heart, but I am loving Anthony Bourdain's show. It's just... Guilty pleasure. Me yeah, too. I, I just... I don't even feel guilty about it. Like, I'm <laughs> just... Um, 
I learned so much from the show and it, it makes me, I'm, I'm actually vegan most of the time, but every time I see him eating like a Cuban sandwich, I want to go eat a Cuban sandwich. Something about that show. It's like, if I could amend my answer, actually, if we're going to go with shows, it's at British Bake Off. British Bake Off, I, you can binge and relax and zone out for an entire weekend and not know But have happens. you seen Nailed It on Netflix? I've seen it, but it's... Ridiculous. <laughs> it's a spoof, basically. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty good. Well, I'll be watching it later today. Yeah. yeah. Um, second question. Lee, Coke or Pepsi? Uh, it was Diet Coke, but no soda since June 30th of last year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Not, not even Lacroix. Not, not even no carbonation. <laughs> oh, and there's a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it used to be Diet Coke. I, I remember drinking Diet Coke from the bottle. Oof. I'll Those have were to the say, days. Yes. I have to say the same. I don't drink soda, but I'm from Atlanta, so mm-hmm. always Coca-Cola. Gotcha. Nice. Loyal. Um, here's another one. Um, this is the way I base my vacation or travel right with the kids and everyone uh what is your next food destination italy uh, do i want to do i need to Anywhere go on in particular all of it north italy all of go. it all <laughs> of it um i've traveled europe but i've never been to italy i also last year watched uh, master of none both seasons. Uh, and, and, I, I must, must go eat all over nice. Italy. Very good. Food okay. trip uh, would have to be New Orleans Ooh. just because it's New Orleans. The food there is amazing. You can find pretty much anything and everything that's good and any hour of the night and have some fun while you're doing it. Very true. Very true. Um, another one. Cook from scratch or meal kit? Right? In the, the era of the blue aprons and the Marley spoons and blah, blah, blah. Are you a, you know, made from scratch woman or? I live in New York City most of the time with barely a kitchen. So I'm a meal kit. But I love to cook. Good. But the reality is I need someone to do it for me most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. From scratch. I live in Sheepshead Bay. I have a backyard, which is a oh. plot of concrete, and I have a full-functioning tomato and yes. pepper and mm. eggplant farm Love it. with self-irrigation. Oh, and my God. It's Solar panels? Uh, that's two that's years in our, in our strategic Got mission it. vision plan. It's Jacob's Farm. It's Sachs Plantation. It's the official name. Wow. Um, we've opened into... Another, another uh, exclusive. In here. like a 10-foot by 10-foot plot. We've expanded into strawberry fields and a blueberry bush this year. A blueberry bush. So we're looking for good stuff, hopefully. But uh, you're yeah. definitely from scratch. Man. From scratch. This from is scratch. very exciting. Yeah. Cool. Um, that pretty much concludes um, the show for this uh, week. We'd like to thank Lee Jacobs and Dina Friedel for their insight, wisdom, and visit to Heritage Radio Network um, here at Roberta's. And you can catch us online, obviously, and on Spotify, on iTunes. And uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.